Champions, our guest today is National Master Ben Johnson, the host of the widely popular Perpetual Trust podcast. Ben has interviewed diverse spectrum of guests, from adult improvers to masters, grandmasters, and even world champions, spanning across hundreds of episodes. I've had the privilege of being a guest on his show too, and this time the roles are reversed. I'm eager to learn not only what he has learned from all those great minds and put in his new book, but also intrigued by how he maintained the discipline of producing a new episode every week. I cannot do that. And he did it for seven years. What he did when the motivation waned, how he overcame these fears and many other things that resonates with Treslaver's journey. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation and to change the places where now I will be the host and I will interview you. Of course, Avtuk. Happy to do it and happy to sit back and just relax and uh, answer some questions for once. For once. Yeah, it's, 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 it's strange. Yeah, now when you are not going to ask the questions, but you are going to answer. Yeah, honestly, I'm more comfortable asking the questions at this point, but but happy to do it. Let, let's get into it. Okay, I, I, will, I will ask some easy questions, some challenging, <laughs> so okay. be ready. Uh, you know, it was uh, back 2018, uh, my advisor called me, who was helping me to start Trasmod. It was just, I was just starting, and he said, you know what, Ava, you need to start a Tras podcast, 2018. And my first question was not why to start Tras podcast, but it was, what is podcast? <laughs> I had no idea what is podcast. So explain me the idea, the concept, and said, like, probably nobody does it in chess industry. This is something new, etc. And said, like, wait, wait, wait. Let me let me see. Let me Google a little bit and see if nobody does it. And if somebody does it good, somebody does it well, there is no problem in that industry. There is no gap. No, I will not start. And then I, I searched a little bit and then I found Perpetual Chess Podcast. Then I found you. And they felt like, no, 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 wait. This guy does it great. There is no any gap. And this is how... Uh, first, I met you and I messaged you like, Ben, I just found you. You are doing a good job. Do you remember it? The message. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I figured that's where this was going. Yeah, I do remember. <laughs> yeah. So 2018, I had like no idea what is podcast. Like now there are podcasts, many podcasts. Now there are many chess podcasts. But you are the first. And how did you come up with the idea? Why did you start a uh, perpetual chess podcast? Well, we've got some similarities in our background, Avtik. I know we both played some poker at times. Um, and I got back into chess in 2016, and I was doing a lot of school programs uh, around where I lived at the time, Pittsburgh. And I, I, unlike you, I was an early adopter of podcasts. I've probably been listening for 10 years now. Uh, so at some point, it, I became aware that there weren't that many chess podcasts. Um, and the more I got back into chess, the more I wanted to use that time where I'm driving around. Uh, to learn more about the game and learn more about the personalities. And there there wasn't much else happening in terms of people doing it. So eventually it's one of those things where, you know, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. And I didn't feel like, like I didn't necessarily feel like I was the best person to do it, but I was willing to put in the work. So here I am. You put lots of work. Yep. Yeah, and it's, it's from, from you, you, you changed your careers a few times, right? You oh, yeah. tried to, like you were a chess player, then poker. You also tried to study law, right? 
So I almost studied law in my days out of university in my 20s and then switched to, to teaching chess. Um, while I was applying to law school, I just decided I didn't want to do it. And it's funny because I worked in a law office for a couple of years and all the lawyers at this law office, they were all making a lot of money, but they all said, don't go to law school, don't go to law school. And no, none of the kids would listen. I mean, I'm calling myself a kid. I was like 23 and I was one of them. I still, I didn't know what else to do. So eventually I decided to apply to law school, but only when I worked in another field, when I started teaching chess for this organization called Chess in the Schools and saw like a job that actually animated me, that was when I decided not to go to law school. It wasn't just by being told. And recently that I found that lawyers are one of the uh, highest paid professionals, but at the same time with statistics, they are the most unhappy people. This is was new for me. At least in the U.S., yeah, that's the that's definitely been the experience. It's pretty, and there there are happy lawyers out there. Um, you know, God bless them, and I do think it's a you know very respectable field. Um, but but there are a lot of unhappy lawyers too. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember when I first my first met the lawyer who is helping me with Charlesmoot, and he became my very good friend. When I first met him, like man, you you don't like at all as a lawyer. You are you are having fun. You are driving this. You are driving an airplane. You are having <laughs> all this fun. So I was very happy to find a man who is not just professional, good, but also having fun. So you you didn't want to go with that way, and you wanted to pursue what you are loving, and. How was it when you switched to poker? Like your family was okay with that? Because my family was not okay with that. Yeah. Well, they kind of, they had time to get used to it. And I was one of these people, I, I have kind of an independent streak. I always, from the time I got out of college, I was thinking like, I'm not going to have like a typical path. Now I did need a job. So I ended up getting a job in a law office, but I did have that streak in me where I was looking for something different. Um, I didn't feel like I was cut out for the nine to five life. Um, and I saw I'm old. So I saw the movie Rounders when it came out. So this is like original poker generation, basically. And but it was chess, you know, part of a sort of unifying thread in my life is the people who also got into poker at the same time were my friends who were all chess players like uh I am Greg Shahadi and Fide Master uh Donnie Ariel. Even I went to college, I grew up in in Philadelphia, went to college in California, other side of the country. And one of my best friends from college ended up being like one of the only chess players there. And he got into poker at the same time. A bunch of us ended up becoming pretty successful as pros because we had that sort of chess players mindset of go over your games, you know, take responsibility for your results, that sort of stuff. And because we were early adopters and the competition wasn't so tough, um, I eventually did, as you say, transition from doing chess stuff to poker for seven. I played professionally for seven years. And then the competition became tougher. And this is when you switched back to chess coaching. Well, that was part of it. The competition did become tougher, but also here in 2000, here in the U.S., uh, for a long time, it was not clear if it, if you were allowed to play online poker. But then what all the poker players call Black Friday happened in 2011, where they closed all the sites and were like, oh, I guess we're not allowed to play. Um, and at that point, you know, I'd had a great run, but I wasn't making as much money as I used to. And I was pretty burnt out. So I was kind of ready for a change. So I wasn't too distraught. I took that as a signal. But I had, But before I got back into chess, 
I had made some money. I'd done pretty well in those years. I had sort of delusions of grandeur. So I decided I'm going to take the money I've made, try to trade it independently. Um, and I spent many years doing that studied. It's not, and I didn't lose all my money or anything, but I wasn't really making money either. It turned out that that's, that's, that's where the real sharks are. Um, and uh, eventually I needed to, you know, we had kids and I needed like I could still do trading stuff, but I needed to, to get back to work um, to, you know, to a, a reliable income. And that was when I got back into chess in 2016. So when you started the Perpetual Podcast, you were coaching and also starting the podcast at the, simultaneously, right? Yeah, I had been back to coaching for about a year when I started Perpetual Chess. How did you come up with the idea Perpetual Chess Podcast? Well, when I was... Wait, what's, uh, from the name, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I would... It took me probably six months to... I had the idea very early on from when I got back into chess, because like I said, I was a podcast listener. So I would think about it and I'm like, you know, why doesn't this exist? Um, so sometimes I would brainstorm names. And once I thought of that one, I was like, that's it. <laughs> so um, I even like, sure. you know, months before I did it, I knew what the name would be if I did it. And 2016, you started, right? Yep. And you kept once a week episode? Yep. Yeah. This is a, this is, this is incredible. Like once a week, that's, that's like seven years. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but I mean, I've taken, I, I love it. Like, I, I really, I don't even like taking weeks off. I mean, um, you know, it's only one hour to 90 minutes per week of recording. And of course, there's a lot of work behind the scenes. But I mean, there's just so many interesting stories in the chess world that that I, I feel like I've only scratched the surface. Okay, so we are getting to the interesting part, like you said, you love it. But first of all, let's start with the discipline part. Like seven years, once a week, episode. What, how did you keep discipline? I guess one, one reason was love because you were just loving it. You are not doing it because you have to, but it was coming from inside, from your heart, right? Am I right? Yeah, for sure. Share, share the share the other thing because the, the way you the way you keep this discipline, I think many chess lovers would love your tips so they can also keep the discipline. Not for chess podcast, maybe, uh, but they are chess chess lives because often right. chess players are having this struggle. Well, it's because I'm really enthusiastic about it, and people who listen to me on Perpetual Chess will know that when it comes to chess study, I often say I'm not the most disciplined. Um, even when it comes to like habits away from the board. I have periods of discipline and periods where my discipline kind of goes away. But, you know, this has become basically a full-time job for me. Um I would like to I would like to always do it. I don't have plans to do anything else. Um you know, you don't get you don't get rich from it, but I'm able to make a living. Um so I I don't take it for granted. So to me, you know, every once in a while like if your schedule sneaks up on you, I'm sure you've, you're experiencing this already. Like you, you know, you feel like you need to put something out and like that can be um, a bit stressful when that happens. But, and that mainly happens. Like I usually try to stay out in front of scheduling guests, but sometimes it's just times aren't working out and stuff. And meanwhile, you need to record an interview, that sort of thing. So that sort of thing does happen. But I mean, it's honestly like, you know, 90 to 95% of the time, it's not a chore to, uh, to to record a podcast 
they are saying yeah that one of the best ways to uh stop selling your time and go to going to work and job yeah is just loving what you are doing and then you are not selling your time and you are then you are free yeah <laughs> yeah that's part of it but like you said when you got into when you started chess mood and looked into chess podcasts like i was more or less first to market i mean there was uh there was the full english breakfast uh they but they had kind of a different format they were kind of riffing on the chess news and they were already kind of slowing down by the time I came, there were no chess interview shows. So, I mean, I, it's also like you couldn't start doing what I was doing now. You would have to be passionate about something else. I mean, and you could do it. It's just it might not end up becoming a job. And, you know, who's to say if I'll be able to do this like as a job forever. But as long as I'm able to to make some money, um, I'd, I'd like to do it for as long as I can. I mean, and, and, you know, not to be crass about it in terms of the money. It's just, you know, when you have a family like you know you've got to account for the hours you spend it's so cool uh and you know pe people like you these are the people whom i call successful people and not the people who are in the top 10 in their profession or world champions when often they are doing what they are not loving and they are selling their time and they are just very outcome obsessed and in your case you are just loving what you are doing you are having fun, and at the same time, you're 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 helping your family. This is this is this is very cool, man. This like you could do so many things, and you you switch to doing what you are loving. Uh, this is incredible. Well, it's kind of you to say, but there is that voice in my head, like having bounced around in careers. You know, I certainly have times where I think, like, what if I had just like studied computer programming when I was twenty three? you know, and like had a steady career arc from there, maybe that would have been a gratifying career too. So by no means do, uh, do I feel like I necessarily, um, you know, that this is a path for everyone, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, to, to be happy That's for you. <laughs> yeah. To be happy yeah. in your work life is not something to take for granted. So I'm, I'm grateful for sure. Now, now I guess that if you, invite like any grandmasters they will happily probably come and like yeah this is ben johnson this is perpetual chess he had world champions but the, the first steps when you just started you didn't know many people people didn't know you i think that that was very challenging yes tell, tell about that like how did you start at first steps yeah well it was it was not as hard as you would think if anything like it's kind of been steady all along there's still people who who say no or don't respond if you ask for an interview. Um, but there were people willing to do it right away. Uh, partially, there were a few reasons. Number one, I mean, chess was just a smaller world back then. Um, so I think even top players weren't getting like besieged with interview requests. Um, so they were generally happy to do it. I think some of them may have recognized that this was something that was good for the chess world generally. Um, but the other thing, as you know, took, the chess world is very small. Um, so even though I'm like a lowly, weak USCF master when it comes to chess playing, I've got some some well-known friends in the chess world who I've had for decades. Um, so that was part of my thinking, even going into the podcast. I mean, I'm you know, I've both Greg and Jennifer Shahadi are two of my best friends in the world. Through them, I met Jan Gustafsson like you know, 25 years ago or something crazy like that. Um, I'm old friends with Mike Klein, who's obviously 
big part of uh, Chess Kid and Chess.com. Uh, ben Feingold, I met through Chess Circles 25 years ago. Um, so even though I'm um, even though I myself am not a grandmaster, especially in the sort of New York to Philly chess circles in my generation, I felt like I knew a good number of people when I started. And I think that helped in addition to just people being chess players, being kind and generous and wanting to tell their stories. So it's like your life motto, which I found somewhere you shared. Life is about the quality of your relationships. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Right. So this uh -huh. is this, this is. This is how it helps helped you, yeah, to start, and this is what you keep. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta shout out my friend Donnie because he's the one who always used to say that. Just in case he he catches this, I can't, I can't leave that unattributed. <laughs> Which went, Danny? Donnie Ariel. He's he's a fide master, but another former poker pro, and he used to, you know, we used to massive upswings, and you know how it is in poker: big upswings, big downswings. Um, you yeah. know. Uh, in the in the macro, the graph is going up, but when you're going through it and you're just losing day after day, it feels, you know, it it feels like the world's crashing down on you. And in those moments, you know, Donnie would say, you know, just one thing to keep in mind: life is about the quality of your relationships. I liked it and took it too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, easier easier to say than to live. True. 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 Um, when you started, did you have a fear like it will not succeed? A perpetual podcast? Well, I didn't really care so much about that. It's more just I'm I'm an introvert by nature. Um, in my experience, I feel like a lot of chess players are. Um, so yeah, it was just really hard to take the first the first few steps. Once I got going, the challenges of that kind of stuff went away very quickly. And I wasn't really worried about failure. I just figured I have nothing to lose. But just pulling the trigger was the hardest part, just actually starting. And, you know, you hear that advice from entrepreneurs all the time um, or, you know, people in creative pursuits. They always say, you've just got to start. And, uh, you know, luckily I had heard that advice and was able to heed it. Um, because it, it's definitely been my experience as well. Recording the first episode was the toughest. It was just a terrible episode. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't tough because I did it with my friend Greg Shahadi, so it was easy in that sense because I'm I'm comfortable. But I had no idea what I was doing. He's not really used to being interviewed, you know. So it's not not my proudest work but it wasn't like challenging to do as it would be with a stranger one of the advice i have i have for beginners is just play and your game thousand will be much better than your first game so right. many are afraid they are just learning and i'm afraid to play so just play play yours so you will see this is progress so the first step for the first step it's often often very tough to do did you have problems to procrastinate like starting the first episode oh when for you sure were, when you had yeah, yeah when you had like let me buy the microphone let me do that and you are procrastinating that 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 and not starting some some inside fear is there oh for sure and i had recorded so i recorded three episodes before i launched the podcast um with uh greg shahadi and jan gustafsson and nazi pakidzi 
um, who was the one person I didn't know, but I, you know, we thought it would be better. Like I was taught, Greg helped me, gave me some counsel when I was trying to, you know, gather my energy to start it. And we felt like it would be better to have someone that wasn't just like a friend, you know? So he reached out to her and she agreed to do it. She was very, very gracious. But yeah, even when the interviews were recorded, like to actually release them, took like that was kind of the final step and it, like that was like crossing you know crossing the rubicon once i actually released them and you know something like 800 i still remember like 800 people listened to like the first episode with greg in a couple of weeks which um which is actually that's a fair amount for you know um for something that's you know no one knew who i was greg had a little bit you know Sorry, Greg, if you're listening, a little bit of notoriety in the chess world, but not like a superstar or anything. Um, so that actually seemed good. So the hardest part was just releasing the first few episodes. By the way, about Greg, uh, he, he asked me to to ask you, like, share something <laughs> about NBA. Oh, I saw <laughs> Did this. You yeah. someone during yes. the NBA match? What happened? So, okay. He said... Uh, <laughs> So in the Facebook thread where uh, on the Perpetual Chess Facebook group, Optic posted for people to share questions. And Greg's question was, have you ever attacked anyone uh, for beating them at NBA Live, which is a video game that we used to play in high school? And Greg was better than me. And it was so frustrating because anyone who's seen Greg's like public persona talking trash to Lawrence Trent, like, uh, you know, he's a he's an excellent trash trash talker. And he was also just better than me at video games. And I was, I'm not so competitive now I'm 46, but, but like a lot of chess players, I was super competitive when I was younger. And at some point I just got so mad and I always felt like I was getting cheated by uh, the game, which of course, in hindsight, you know, probably wasn't true. Um, so at some point I like attacked him, you know, I didn't like punch him in the face or throw him against the wall or something, but I may have thrown a remote at him or something. Um, definitely. Um, behavior i wouldn't condone today how, how old were you then oh it was in high school i mean i was probably 16 17 something like that okay i i i i'm i hope greg listen this and he doesn't I, have this uh, <laughs> feelings that i'm going to get them back <laughs> <laughs> no he's uh i mean he lived it he already knows i think he's forgiven me but maybe not like, I'm sure he, he he did because he himself <laughs> asked me <laughs> to ask me this question. Uh, ben, tell me about this. Uh, that as a chess player, like we are competitive, and this is often the the competitiveness of chess players. Often it's good, and often it is bad. Like when we are going to play once a week soccer game, we have every Saturday. We have in the evening we have soccer game, so it's our chess mode team playing against other team every week right. once a week we are doing and it's so interesting no matter how the opposite team is strong uh no matter how good their players how they are better than us how we are getting pressed all the time during the game like 99% of the times we are still winning and i'm th i'm finding it in just one reason because our team are chess players yeah, international masters, grand masters. So we are competing, competitive. Even if it's just soccer, just fun game to play, we are still have this competitiveness in us. Or if you are playing some video games uh, here, if somebody out from the chess world, not chess player, we mostly like play differently. 
So this is the kind of advantage that this competitiveness helps. But at the same time, I feel that many chess players, uh, after playing this zero-sum, harsh chess game, competitive, competitive, they struggle in life often when instead of finding some win-win situations and instead of thinking collaborative, they are still continuing this competitive approach. So tell me, how did you find the balance? Uh, I think I just got old. <laughs> I think I think that was I think that was the solution for me. I was pretty competitive in everything I did, you know, through my twenties to early thirties, and it might have it might have really settled down when I had kids, which I had kids fairly late. Uh, um, I'll have to think about. <laughs> I'll have to think about. Uh, yeah, I had kids when I was like thirty six. Um, so that's when it really settled, settled down. So I don't feel like I have too much. Um, I mean, I will say poker helped with that, um, because, um, you can't play poker for a living and not lose. I mean, chess, it's true too, but I wasn't at your level. I wasn't at the professional level. So the losing bothered me, but it was also like kind of expected, um, but in poker, as as I mentioned earlier, you you can't play for a living without having like you know losing weeks, losing even losing months. Um, so at some point, if you're gonna stay in that line of work, uh, you need to sort of calibrate your competitive instincts. People are asking me, uh, what's what was the biggest lesson you get from chess or from poker? Uh, I'm saying I have learned more lessons like that I need to need in life, and I took more lessons from poker. What 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 do you answer to this question? Wow, that's a tough one. I mean, they've both been so instrumental, and since chess came first, um, it kind of holds a special place in my heart because if it weren't for chess, I I wouldn't have been able to to have the success that I did in poker. But I mean, I will say that for kids, obviously, chess is a better game in terms of teaching life skills. Um, but for poker, learning the ability to think probabilistically is something that some pe many people just never learn. So I will say that probably has more practical um, utility than any single skill that, that chess teaches you. Yeah. Very good answer. It's, it's, it's in it for, for for kids. It's much better to chess. Yeah, just think strategically. Um, why I say poker is 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 I think it's more use. It gives more lessons to life because it it seems to me it's more close to poker is more close to life because in chess you can just uh, be good to make good decisions and you win win win. Uh, poker is more more like in life. You can still do a good decision. You can still play the hand. In a best way, but you still lose. Yeah, which doesn't which doesn't mean your move bad. Yep. Yeah. You still, I... you still, you should think in life like that. So if you did something nice, but at the end somebody betrayed, somebody did bad, it doesn't mean your initial move was bad. It was just good. You just need to do good, 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 good moves in a row, and on the long run, you should think on the long run, on, on as you said, on probabilities. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, as you, when you put it like that, what it makes me realize is like with chess, it's kids and you want to teach chess that 
you want to teach kids that life is fair, you know, and just kind of teaches them that like, you'll, you know, you'll make decisions and there will be consequences based on the decisions you make. You want kids to think like, oh, okay, so it works linearly. If I make good decisions, good things will happen. But when you learn to play poker, you learn, oh, actually, life is unfair, you know, Um, and that's a better long term lesson to learn, but you can't teach it. You shouldn't teach it to like seven year olds, you know, so um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but you were successful at chess. You became a master. You were successful at uh, poker. You were decent at stock. So you changed professions many times. Did it give you confidence that even if you start new podcasts that nobody like really do, like you will that confidence? Did it help you? So does it does it help you in life that whatever you do, you will do good? Uh, I don't necessarily feel that way. Yeah, I sort of feel like I'm just kind of fumbling around in the dark and it's worked out so far, but I don't necessarily feel like I have some master plan. And, you know, the the struggles I felt when I tried to to trade independently, like that was definitely sobering. That was uh, in sports and basketball. Like if you make like four shots in a row, sometimes I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but sometimes you'll see like someone makes three shots in a row and then they're really getting confident. So then they'll pull up from like half court, you know, um, and they they think they're just going to make it because they've been making their previous shots. So they call that a heat check in basketball when when you're like, OK, let's see how hot I am. So for me, trying to trade independently was kind of like a heat check. It was like a a um a wake up call that like, no, you can't just like, you know, suddenly try to independently work in the most competitive field in the world uh, and expect success. Now, chess podcasting, I'm very grateful to have found an audience. You know, uh, I take pride in the work I do. I don't think I was great at the beginning. I hope that I'm pretty good uh, after all these years. Um, but it's not, not as competitive as something like competing in the financial markets. So, um, uh, and and uh, not as uh, financially lucrative either. So, um, you, you know, you could say you're sort of um, uh, swimming in a in a different pool. Yeah. So 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 it's 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 so interesting. How many episodes, episodes did you have already? Uh, I mean, the episode number is like three fifty six, but then there's like. 36 book reviews on top of uh, over 400. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Over 400. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that, that's, that's, that's a big amount. And you had world champions. You had Gramnik Anand. Yeah. You had Garwana. Yeah. So many people. Uh, then often I'm sh- Okay, I, I would not sh- say I'm sure because it seems you loved it. Love is love this so much. Uh, did you have days when you just didn't want to record an episode, but you have to? Uh, for me, once I have an interview scheduled, I'm almost always excited to do it. What, it can, emailing people and trying to set up interviews and not knowing if they're going to reply, like that's the stuff that can get a little bit old. But, um, but basically, I'm I'm always always excited to hear someone's story and to talk about their lives and what's going on in the chess world. Um, so yeah, it 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 doesn't. There aren't too many days where I'm not excited in in that regard. I can't I can't even really think of any. Did you have dice when you were nervous before the episode? I was nervous when I interviewed Judith Polgar 
Um, that was fairly early in the podcast life and within the first year. And she in particular, I mean, I'd already interviewed like uh, at that point, Sam Shankland and, um, you know, I'm sure some other uh, pretty prominent players and creators. Um, but she's just such a legend that I found her. Uh, I was nervous for that one. And of course, I was nervous for uh, Viswanathan Anand for the world champion, even more so than another world champion like Kramnik. There's something about the legendary status of Anand in particular that th those were the two I was really nervous for. I can't uh, mostly uh, I feel OK. Do you have any advice for chess players who will ask this question like often they are nervous before the game? Do you have any tips or you didn't figure it out yourself how to yeah, do that I wrote, so I, Yeah, I wrote about this in the book because it comes up a fair amount in in the podcast. Um, and no one I've interviewed has really given advice to make it disappear. They all kind of say, including the aforementioned Viswanathan Anand, who told a story about what it felt like to be at the board and for forgetting his prep because uh, uh, a Patreon sub on perpetual chest asked him about um, why he always looks so cool. And he said at sometimes when he's at the board, he feels terrified. You know, he said, you know, it's like he's seeing ghosts because you think, you know, you, you thought you knew this line cold, but then you're sitting at the board and looking at the lines and you're like, well, what happens if he does this? And what happens if, or if she does that? Um, so I found that very relatable. And once Anand described the scale of the nerves that he still dealt with, I felt like, well, okay, it's hopeless for the rest of us. You know, if, if he's still nervous, then, then, you know, the rest of us probably, we just have to, we just have to learn to live with it and try to channel it into positive energy. Jonathan Rousen in the uh, seven deadly chestins, or it might've been in chess for zebras wrote about how the idea that like, you want to feel nervous because that means you care. You know, if you don't feel nervous, like that tells you that that something's a bit off, you know, that that it's not consequential. Um, true. If, if you are not nervous, if you are like oh, often the world champions and grandmasters, top players are becoming the kids who are crying when they are losing and at their childhood when they are losing the games. Usually the kids who are not crying when they are losing uh, at the end, usually they are stopping at some point. Yeah, so you should cry. You should take it so badly uh, so that at the end you get. So agree with that, that uh, you have, when you are nervous, it's, it, it, it shows that you are, that you care. But at the end, anyway, it, it can, it can, it can block you. Yeah. It's too much nervousness can block you. Yeah, so for anyway, sure. like so is 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 there something you are doing? Like, okay, it's you are about to click the recording button with Vishwanathan Anand and there is nervousness inside you. What you do, like drinking, breathing, how do you do that? Well, it's not that it's not that terrifying. I mean, we're not um, you know, we're not performing like heart surgery or anything. So um you, you know, at some point, you know, you just click the button and start, and then it gets easier. Um too many of these questions that I had in my mind, including how to deal with nervousness, I, I, I dive. I'm not sure to say the deep, but some some level of deep. Yeah, uh, to study philosophy, to study spiritual stuff. Uh, because what was frustrating for me is this: often, indeed, you should cry, you should be nervous in order to get to the top. You should be often unsatisfied with whatever you achieve. So 
let's say you are a hunt, sprint runner, yeah, and you are running it in nine seconds, and then you are like, no, I'm. This is bad. The next day you are running eight and nine. No, this is bad. Then you are eight and eight. So you should always be unsatisfied for, for from yourself. Want more, more, more. Then you are getting there. But when you are looking back, often you are unhappy. So this was a question I was constantly asking. Yes, that yeah, you should cry when you are a child. You should be nervous for getting there at the top. But at the end, you are getting it at the top, and you are still very unhappy. So this is the question I wanted to uh, to find out when I dive into the spiritual stuff. And once about nervousness, I heard something about Kobe Bryant. I was driving a car. I just pulled the car and like, what? What did he say? Uh, are you aware of his answer or? No, no. Let's hear it. Okay, so he said something very interesting. Uh, the journalist asks him, like during the game, uh, did you find did you find yourself when you are nervous? And he said, yes, I used to, but now not. And he said, the the journalist, how like how do you deal? He said something very very deep. He said, there is no nervousness. <laughs> there is only ego. Hmm. So. This is this is this is where I dive, 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 and I found like indeed, it's it's when somebody is nervous before the game, right there, it's only he or she who is nervous. Other world, they are just living their lives, so their ego just afraid that wanting result, etc. Whatever ego wants, ego is fear. Ego wants something. Ego is afraid. What will happen if I lose the game, etc. So. Kobe dealt it that way. He dealt with nervousness, with spiritual way, learning to deal with ego, learning harnessing it, and trying to not to get rid of the ego, but try to keep healthy ego. And this is the way he deals. Like each time some nervousness, he understood there is the ego thing, and he tried to understand from where this, what does it ego wants? Ego is fear. Ego wants some result. Relax the ego, and then it was okay for him. Huh. Yeah, the, it is a profound insight. Wow. I, I had not heard that before. Well, Ben, you did so many episodes. Uh, and the, how did you keep discipline? How did you deal with fear to everything you answered that you loved it? You were excited about it, right? Um, anything else that helped you? Did you have like strong... For me, for example... Whenever there is happening, when I something is wrong in my in my mindset, I don't really want to work. Something I don't want to record this video. One of the things that reminds that helps me going it's my why, my strong why, and I even have a big article about find a good why. Did you have a why, or it was just love to the things that was pushing you forward? Yeah, well, you know, I stole that question for you from you. I ask it on perpetual chess sometimes now because, like, when we yeah. when I interviewed you for perpetual chess, we talked about that, and obviously, it's a uh, very very important question to ask yourself. But, um, but I mean, for for what I do for interviewing chess players, I mean, uh, you know, you know, the driving force is to try to connect people, to try to to try to, um, you know, help show people that even whether they be a super grandmaster or an amateur who's spending five hours a week on chess, you know, trying to gain a hundred rating points. Um, they, they have the same love for the game and they're dealing with a lot of the same struggles. Um, so I, 
I just love hearing hearing those stories and hearing how chess can impact people in in different ways. Um, I also feel like there's there's a unique challenge, especially if you're not a professional, in how to incorporate chess into your life because it's it can be such a consuming game that you can kind of fall into the abyss, you know, where it might be having a negative effect on your relationships, uh, maybe on your job, maybe on your sleep. You know, I think a lot of chess players, even if they're not at that point currently, they might have had a point in their life where they feel like this game is negatively impacting other aspects of my life. And I'm not sure if it's worth it. Um, and I feel like because those questions kind of constantly circle, that's part of what makes conversations about like a life in chess uh, super interesting to me because everyone has to grapple with these questions and everyone's answer might end up being a little bit different. But hearing these, you know, hundreds of stories maybe helps you put the pieces together yourself of exactly what role chess will play in your life. Did you put pieces exactly in their places or you are still putting it? Well, yeah, I mean, I for me, it comes down to imposter syndrome because I work less hard on my chest than probably 95% of the people that I interview. So that's kind of maybe maybe even higher. So that's kind of where I've landed. I still love chess. I still do chess every day. But when push comes to shove, um, there I often go through periods where I just don't have the drive to to work hard on my game. But I try not to like pretend, you know, that that I'm grinding for hours a day, you know, um, trying to get better. And I still do compete like and that does still keep me motivated to a sense. But um, but but yeah. Uh, from 2016 then, then that you started Perpetual Chess Podcast till now. How much have, have you? How, how much have you improved? How much rating has you raised? As people <laughs> often say, like rating, rating. How much you raised? <laughs> yeah, I probably, I'm. It's pretty. I might be down forty points. USCF FIDE. Of course, I've lost hundreds of points, but honestly, with what's going on with the FIDE ratings, um, you know, I don't want to make excuses, but but yeah. but FIDE rating deflation has been tough. Um, and in USCF, I'm, you know, I was in the 2100s then. I'm in the 2100s now. Um, so I think I might be a little bit lower rated. But basically, I feel like I'm, I mean, I wasn't working hard when I started and I have put in a lot of work. So I feel like I'm a little stronger, but, uh, but other people have probably improved more. Like relative to the rating pool, I'm probably weaker. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't improved a ton, uh, compared to other people, but it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really bother me as long as I'm upfront about it. I just don't want to misrepresent is my main goal. Your main goal, which one? Yeah. I'm just saying, I wouldn't want to say like, you know, like I just wrote a book about chess improvement and I wouldn't want to say in the book, like, you know, I'm a huge expert of, of how to, how to grow your rating. So I try to, I try to tell it from the perspective of here are some of the best stories and the best advice that's been shared by these very accomplished people. And here's how chess again, plays a role in my life. Um, and, and the, the decisions I've come to about the amount of effort I'm willing to put in to try to get better at chess and, it hasn't proven to be enough for me to get better at chess. 
And honestly, I wouldn't really expect it to. Um, chess is is too too hard of a game uh, for you to play a couple games of blitz a day um, and maybe look at openings for 10 minutes and expect to be able to to compete, you know, at the master level um, or or grow at the master level. So I just try to be honest about that and, and talk about like, you know, if you wanted to work hard, this would be a good way to do it. I personally, I work hard on other things, but I'm not working extremely hard on my chess right now. And what do you love more, to do perpetual chess podcast or to play competitive chess? I, I bet you know the answer. What do you think? Podcast, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I mean, do you do you think if you if if you loved chess as much as you love doing the perpetual chess podcast and interviewing people, talking to people, you would raise your rating if you if there was more love to playing? Maybe a little bit, but it's hard. I mean, I, in your forties, you're swimming upstream. So it's you know, I might be able to get like you know your friend James Altucher, like. He's putting in a ton of work and facing some challenges. And obviously he's got a lot of resources, you know. Um, so it's tough. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily assume that that I would, which is another thing that again, people have to grapple with when they play chess. Like, and and I say this in my book too, you know, you have to be, I may not say it explicitly in in these words, but you've got to be aware you might spend hundreds of hundreds of hours, thousands of hours studying this game, and you know. At least if you're going to measure yourself by rating, it might not go up. You know, you you better know that going in. So, what what's the answer? Do you, do do you recommend like just love what you are doing? Yeah, and don't measure yourself so much by rating. I mean, there's still tons you can learn from chess, and I do still play tournaments because I learned something about myself about overcoming adversity. It's sort of like a microcosm of sort of facing your own mortality and fallibility when you make these stupid blunders and you're just like, oh, my God, what is wrong with me? You know, but then you just have to sit there and think about it. Like, and, you know, we're, as we're recording this, like uh, Vita just won the Fide Grand Swiss. And I thought that was like an amazing microcosm of what a chess player goes through because of the, he just had this colossal blunder in round one against Erwin Lemie, you know, to be winning. And then a few moves later to have it be even, and then to lose and be in one of the strongest chess tournaments in history and not one of the favorites and to pick yourself up and win the tournament. I mean, I just like, I found that so inspiring and it's not inspiring in the sense where I'm going to start studying chess 20 hours a day, but like, those mini lessons are what we all can have. And they're they're hopefully you can take them beyond the chessboard so that even if you're not getting better at chess, you're sort of dealing with those feelings and being able to to propel you forward in other aspects. True, true. true. This is this is also the advice I'm having for chess lovers, because we are having many students who are like most most of them like not just our students over the chess world are very obsessed with improving writing like the first thing i want to raise this amount of writing to get 2000 1500 1000 or 2500 master level titles and I, I feel this is one of the society's traps to all the time be obsessed with results yeah. it's also one of the traps of our ego so that it wants all the time X things to this to be satisfied with something, and recently I tweeted this that uh, if you are obsessed more with the outcome, with the results, than what you are doing, 
there is something wrong with your values. There is something wrong with your system you think about. So if you are not loving what you are doing more and you are loving more the outcome, the moment that you will get that writing, there is something totally wrong. So you should just enjoy. If you are yeah. not enjoying it and at the end you get there, you will not you will not be happy anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's certainly I agree with you and but the thing is the rating is there, you know, like Lee chess has like Zen mode, you know, you can turn it off and try not to think about it. But if you're playing like, you know, over the board competitive chess, you know, it's right there next to your name, you know? So it's really, it's really yeah, hard it's not to difficult. think about. Yeah. It's yeah. Difficult. True, true, true. But, um, are doing so many episodes, you started to write the book. Tell me how, how did it come to idea? Did, did, did you have in your mind that one day I will write and like you were procrastinating the starting the podcast, you were procrastinating the book? How how, how did it happen? Yeah, the, the procrastinating mainly started once the book was underway. But I mean, I have always in, <laughs> I have always enjoyed writing. Um, and at some point, New and Jess approached me and we brainstormed a couple ideas and we kind of settled on sort of the compiled chess improvement advice. And then I started to write a little bit. This was a couple years ago. I would try to do a little bit every day, but it would end up being about a little bit half half the work days, something like that. But the material was slowly accumulating. And I did find it to be really helpful, especially as I got to the later stages, because I mean, obviously it's such a mass of, of material at this point, um, all the interviews I've done that it gave me a chance to sit and try to synthesize, like, what do I think of all these questions myself? Um, and again, because I enjoy the process of, of writing and because I felt like going back through the archives and uh, trying to remember all this material and sort of think of things by theme, I felt like, um, you know, I think uh, Tim Ferriss at some point, and actually I think this was relating to podcasts, or he says, when you're thinking about starting a new endeavor, um, you know, you want to think about starting something where even if you lose, you can win. Uh, basically being the idea that like if your if your primary objective isn't achieved, you're able to achieve something else out of it. So like this book, you know, like it might not make me rich, you know, <laughs> fair, fair to say that it won't make me rich. But the act of having spent all this time going through all the material, um, it really gave me a chance to sort of synthesize everything, I think, and to remember a lot more of the insights that have been shared over, through all these interviews. Say it again, please. What did Tim Ferriss say? When you lose, but you still win? What if, was the quote? He said, if you're considering trying a new project, then you want to try one where even if you lose, meaning even if you don't get what your number one goal was for it, you can still win in some other way. You can still get some other benefit from it that makes it worthwhile. Wow, that is very cool. Very, very cool sentence. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. A similar thing I've I've heard from Elon Musk when somebody asked him about uh, the SpaceX project. Like he said, I knew that there are there is big chance, bigger chance that we will fail than we, than we will succeed. But he said, uh, it's it's good to pursue something that you know that there is lots of chance that you will not make it. But you know that even at the end, you don't make it. You know that your try was worth it. Right. 
So it's another way of putting that there is some other type of winning. And by the way, about Team Ferris, uh, have you read his Tools of Titans? I've read some of it. It's a it's a big book, so I, I haven't read the whole thing. Um, the Tools of Titans of Team Ferris was one of one of the first books that I read after starting Chessmod. I started reading really after starting Chessmod. I mean, I used to read some. Uh, Chess, not some lots of chess books. Right, but really read odd other books, uh, business book, philosophical books, other etc. I I I started after chess, starting chess mode. Team first tools of Titans was one of the first, and when I saw your podcast, perpetual chess podcast, I felt like, yeah, Ben should do something like Team Ferris <laughs> have done. When Team Ferris, like just you, he interviewed so many successful people including Arnold Schwarzenegger, Olympic champions, like top uh, CEOs and others. And then he wrote the book. I said, like, well, one day Ben also should do that. Now, I haven't seen your book and I was brainstorming. Should I get your book first and then interview you? Or but it's better to, to go this way and with the audience discover what is about the book. So I decided to go with the second approach. When with the audience, I will discover what is about the book. So tell it, please. Is it with the theme various format when he is like two pages about every guest, or it's you took overall? Uh, how how what's the format of your book? Yeah. So I looked at books like that. I thought about it in terms of how to format the book, but that's not what I ended up doing. I ended up doing it by chess improvement theme, um, but it's pretty philosophical in nature. Um, it's, you know, the book is still being released. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy that so far I'm getting mostly positive feedback about it, but, um, but like there haven't been a ton of reviews or anything about it yet. Um, but my friend, Dr. Christopher Shabri, who's a cognitive scientist, um, who's been on the podcast a bunch of times, he compared it to like a Jonathan Rousen book. Like it does have sort of, and uh, you know, obviously that guy's a genius and I'm not, so I'm not, you know, I'm not comparing myself uh, to him, but it it has a same sort of philosophical bent in terms of um, especially like uh chess for zebras. So, but to, to more directly answer your question, the way that the book is structured is um, it's in four parts. And the first part is called the four pillars of chess improvement. So, you know, again, I'm drawing on insights from trainers like Ramesh and Agard and, you know, stuff Nakamura said when I interviewed him and uh, lots of top players as well as accomplished amateurs. So these are the four things that, you want to have as a part of your chest life if you're working to improve. Um, and then the second part is stuff that people sorry, argue sorry, about. Sorry, sorry. First part, the fourth pillars, what are they? Oh, see, I thought it might be fun since I know you you haven't read the book yet. I thought it might be fun if I have you guess. What would you think they would be? Uh, I have written an article about how to get better at chess. Yeah, I read it. And it just came out, right? How to get better at chess? I think you have some months or maybe some okay. some months already. So I put it this. I I, I named it uh, how to get better at chess. Uh, what was the? Uh, I I forgot the title of the article. Three three pillars and secrets or something. To, wait a second. Uh, because it was four. In my case, it was also four. So that's okay. why I asked what was their fourth. Okay, so I called how to get better at chess, the three-step formula and the secret sauce. 
Okay. So it's like, it's like in in my case, it was it was also four. So it's interesting if 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 there is overlap with with your four pillars. So my four pillars are this: it's study, practice, fix. This is the system. Right. And this is for for me. It is like whatever you want to do. It's study, practice, fix. So even if I now I am trying to improve my writing, even now I have this study, practice, fix. So uh, James Altucher is my mentor in writing. That's I great. I was lucky. I got one of the best writers <laughs> right. uh, yeah. now mentoring me. So study, it is, he's giving me books to read. He's giving me things to read. I am reading lots of other people. Uh, so this is my study part. I'm practicing, so I'm writing articles a lot. Even I'm trying to write some just stories from the lives, just to write. So whenever I study something, I, I, I practice it. And the third is fixing. So once a week with James, we are going through my writings and he's fixing this, that, that, that. And each time with the fixing, I'm also learning. So this is like study, practice, fix. It's for me, whatever you want to do. It's You want to learn business. You want to, to learn how to do chess podcast you should like podcast you should do still think study how to do that practice and then fix and fix by the way this is the one of the things i'm always doing and even at the end when i uh, click the button stop the recording i will ask you a question what feedback do you have for me because this is fixed for me you have been in podcast much more than me so this is part of fix so it's study practice fix is the first three and the fourth that i called secret sauce it is a mindset and the mindset includes why have you why do you do that? The love that you said, yeah, the love for perpetual chess podcast that pushed you forward. So the fourth for me was mindset. So study, practice, fix, mindset. This was my four pillars. Now tell what is there in your okay. Book. Yeah. So mine has different wording, of course, but there's definitely some overlap. So one primary difference, and uh, again, what you're doing is applicable to like all, you know, like you say, anything that you're trying to get better at but mine was slightly more chess focused. So my number one is play competitive games. Um, so I'm saying not, not just like, you know, playing, I think I say in the book, like not just like playing bullet on your phone, on the toilet, you know, but actually playing a game that feels important to you, ideally a tournament game, but if it's like an online training game and it feels like it really matters, um, you know, the important thing is that you you're fired up for it. You're, you're fully engaged and, you know, that way, if you make a mistake, it will really leave a mark. Um, and number two is review. So that's, you know, that's fix. Um, yeah, yeah. And number three is solve, solve exercises, solve puzzles. So um, that's practice. Um, but number four in my book is community. Um, because I, I just argue that chess is too hard. And I look at, you know, I tell some stories about like Bobby Fischer and Magnus Carlsen and Viswanathan Anand and like how they came up in in the chess world and also tell some stories about some amateurs and how they sort of went and found the community. But the bottom line is like that can be like joining something like Chess Mood, getting a coach, but also just finding peers. It can even be just like finding a local role model. But the bottom line is because getting better at chess is so hard. Um, and it's an individual game. You're marked on your own. You know, a lot of people sort of come into it on their own. I think especially people from the Queen's Gambit sort of generation might have just seen the show and gotten into it and not necessarily known anyone in it. But I'm just making the argument that you have to have a network if you're going to stick with it. There's just no way otherwise. So for me, those are the four pillars. God, 
what, what's what's the second part of the book about so the second part of the book is it's called other aspects of chess you might want to work on so it's stuff that people kind of argue about like how much should I study openings do I need to study end games on their own or can I just review end games when they come up in my games do I need to memorize all these technical end games if I'm like an amateur player do I need to be doing end game studies do I need to work on my blindfold skills is speed chess good for my chess or is it bad for my chess so all these kind of recurring debates that have occurred over the course of uh the podcast I kind of lay out the arguments for both sides and kind of offer my opinion on those. That's that's the second part of the book. Four, four parts, you said, yeah? The book. Yeah, four parts. Okay. And the third part? So the third part is right up Chess Moods Alley. It's uh, away from the board ways to work on your game. So um, it's about like maintaining routines, you know, setting habits, how to approach a tournament when you're at the tournament. It's about like exercise and mindfulness. Um, there's an, uh, there's a chapter mm -hmm. in there about playing against kids, like how to psychologically deal with, uh, nice. playing against kids. So, um, so yeah, it's about like when I'm not actively working on chess, what can I do that might help my chess? And if it doesn't help my chess, it'll at least like help. It might help me grow as a person anyway. Cool. Very, very, very cool chapter. <laughs> yeah. And the fourth. The fourth part is just tools of improvement. So I just go through the sort of major methods of chess improvement, chess books then and now. Do people still need chess books? Um, Lee Chess and Chess.com, how to use them properly, chess based, stuff like that. So I would say the fourth is, you know, if you're like a, a 2000 level player who's been playing for 15 years, you know, you don't need me to tell you what a Lee Chess study is. Um, so there's there's some stuff in there that, that you'd be familiar with, but I try to tell enough stories in there um, and, you know, sort of share enough tips that have been shared through the podcast um, to, to make it worthwhile, even if you're an experienced player. But yeah, the fourth part is called tools of improvement and it goes through sort of the, the major uh chess tools you also shared the interesting stories that you have learned that you have listened to during the episodes of your podcast have i shared them uh, yeah like stories like interesting stories yeah stories i mean there, there's or... so many like so a lot of them are sort of tangentially related to uh like or they kind of like set the stage for how things have changed. So Peter Svidler did this Q and A for Chess Twenty Four that I watched a long time ago, and then one of the times I interviewed him, I got to follow up on it. And this is a story, you know, Avtek. Someone like you, you've heard a million stories like it, but someone newer to chess maybe hadn't. But he told the story of growing up in like late Soviet era Saint Petersburg and waiting to get the chess informant. You know, like. You know, uh, for for listeners who aren't familiar, it was basically this uh, chess encyclopedia of games that came out twice a year that had all the grandmaster games that took place in the world. And this is basically when computers were just chess base was like just getting invented. So there were no real databases. Opening books were like slow to come out and you may or may not get your hands on them. Um, and especially like a professional track player like him, like a stronger player like him. It was also a rare opportunity to find out what openings your opponents played. And in those days, you know, even top players often had fairly, fairly predictable repertoires. So anyway, I mean, Svidler just tells this story of like, 
getting on the list at this store on Nevsky Prospect in the center of St. Petersburg to be one of the people who gets one of the 50 informants that comes to his city and like having the date circled on his calendar where he's going to go get this like coveted piece of information. So in the tools of chest improvement story, like I tell that story to just sort of set the stage for like how spoiled we are now, you know, that you know we are now it's good yeah good, good sentence yeah that we just it's... have amazing resources as far as the eye can see and we've yes. got chess engines that always tell us the answer and it wasn't that long ago we're talking about like 1990 you know um where he just wants this one nugget of information and he just can't wait you know he just can't wait to get it actually one funny story about this chess informants uh, okay it was uh sorry Swidler started to play chess much earlier than me, but even it was in 2000 something. So I was probably 13 years old. Uh, and it was the only time in my in my life when on April 1, the full day, I was fooled. So every April 1, we were trying at our family to, to fool each other somehow, to make uh-huh. some jokes. And often I was succeeding to fool others, but no one, no one fooled me except once was that my dad did with me. So I was 13 years old, I was sleeping, and my father is coming and like, wake up, wake up. And like, what happened? And his, uh, your sister accidentally uh, pulled the water on all your copies of of your <laughs> encyclopedias. I had a, one big shelter of all the encyclopedias, so I couldn't get them because the chess... Uh, like chess, 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 chess house of Armenia had just one informant of all of them. You couldn't get it, but right. you could take and copy, copy that. So I was asking my coach to get that. So I would go copy that Xerox and then it was. So I was, and I had lots of copies of all these informants. And my father is saying, your sister pulled the water on your encyclopedias and I'm rushing from my bed <laughs> on my encyclopedias running and then his uh, happy full day happy april one so myself i had this all the encyclopedias and everything when now you just have chess base you have all games there annotated that 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 do you have so many tools now that's that yeah you're you, that you, you put it right it's spoiled <laughs> yeah so easier now but at the same time there is information overwhelm yeah like yeah house so it's, I said, once somebody asked me, is it easier now to improve? I said, yes, definitely it is easier because so many things, so many books, so many software, so many websites, like even chess modes, there haven't been like 10 places where you could watch Grandmasters recording a video explaining some opening with my friends. We would spend years to learn how to play against Scandinavian one, which you cannot just go to chess mode or chessable, find some course, grandmaster explaining something, so it's spoiled. But at the same time, there is information house yeah. that it's very difficult to to deal with. By the way, about spoiling, uh, Fisher studied Russian just to understand the chess books and chess magazines and that then it was mostly written in Russian. Now there are so many things in English, yeah? And you learned Russian for that? Yeah, similar. I mean, not to compare myself to Bobby Fischer um, by any means, whether I wouldn't want to as a chess player or 
<laughs> as a person. Um, but but yeah, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and there was a pretty significant Russian emigrant community. So a lot of sort of old Russian emigrant masters. And obviously I'm from I'm from the generation where eventually people like Yermolinsky and Kadanov and like Ivanov and all these uh, Soviet players started to make their way to the United States. So when you would play in the big tournaments like the World Open um, in the United States, you would hear Russian, uh, you know, you would hear Russian in the halls all the time. Um, and at some of the smaller tournaments, Russian, you know, if you were playing a Russian player, um, this was pre-engine days, but y- people would be having conversations in the middle of their games and they would be speaking in Russian. Um, and they didn't have the you know, the people always wondered, you know, are they talking about chess? Are they, you know, are they sharing moves with each other? So when I got to college in in high school, I was a good student in some regards, but I was not a great language student. And the way it works in the United States is um, if, if you do well enough in language, you can, um, you can sort of pass out of studying at a college, but I was a bad French student in high school. So when I got to college, I needed to either start over in French or start over in another language. And I, and Russian hadn't been available in my high school, but now it was at university. So I thought, well, I'd like to know where, you know, I'd like to know what these guys are saying during my game. So I started studying Russian for that reason and ended up living in St. Petersburg uh, for a few months. And, uh, majoring in Russian. Sadly, I didn't keep up with it. So I'm kind of, that's one area where I'm really embarrassed is if I try to speak Russian, but, uh, but I did used to speak it decently. So when you started to learn Russian, instead of learning just uh uh, most common words you are starting to learn how to say rook in russian how right. to say the knight in russian so you have this teacher and the cheaters and say you say it coin this is knight. <laughs> yeah, you say it. Ex- exactly uh cool uh ben uh in your book you have lots of stories so i'm not going to ask you to t- to tell all of them so the the chess lovers can 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 take your book and read all of them myself i'm going to do that but what's the one story that changed you, changed mm. the way you are thinking, changed changed something in you? Wow, I got to think about that one for a minute. Let me think. Um, well, I mean, in terms of chess, I mean, this is not a, in terms of chess advice that I think of a lot. I mean, Christoph Zalecki and Erwin Lemie both talking about sort of the fact that chess is a game of mistakes um, and that you need, you know, you need to, your opponent needs to make a mistake. Basically, you're not going to win a game um, out of brilliancy alone. Your opponent needs to do something wrong. So I try to take that to heart in terms of uh, how I approach the game. I'm working on becoming more practical. So I I definitely place more of an emphasis on not screwing up uh, when I play than like looking for brilliancies or trying to be perfect. But I'm sure that there are other stories that have had like a beyond the chessboard emphasis, like impact on me, but I'm drawing a blank. So maybe we can come back to that question a bit later. Super, super. Uh, but you did, you started perpetual chess podcast and you started to, to you, then you wrote this book. What, what's your, what's your, what's your next step? 
So I have an idea for, I'm working on a chessable course that's more beginner oriented, it's tactics oriented. Um, so that'll keep me busy for a couple months. Um, but it's not like I'm, you know, it's not a lifetime repertoire. I'm not pretending to be a grandmaster. You know, basically the idea is it's, you know, going to be geared for like a thousand to twelve hundred players um, and try to help them with a specific aspect of uh, tactics. So to the extent that I have extra time, I'll be working on that in the coming months. And beyond that, I don't I haven't decided yet. I mean, uh, longer term, I may I'll see how this book is received. I may decide to write something else. Um, or pump out some more courses or something like that. But I'm not, uh, I enjoy creating content. So um, as long as uh, that, that's sort of my, my main goal is um, in addition to the podcast, um, you know, I'm doing like a weekly newsletter now. Um, and so different content and different aspects, and we'll see what resonates with people. Whatever you start, there should be excitement and love. For sure. <laughs> otherwise, 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 you just don't start it. Yeah, it sounds like very you're speaking good. from very, experience very there. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very, very, very cool. All right, Ben. Let me ask you the last question. The the question I'm asking everyone. Um, do you have lots of tips, advice there in your book that people will find? But still, what is the one thing? you recommend to chess lovers who wants to enjoy this game and improve at the same time. Hmm. Enjoy the, the game and improve at the same time. Well, I mean, I'll quote Willie Hendricks from my interview. He's written a couple great books, um, but one line that he said that definitely resonated with me is the big secret is there is no secret. Um, and he, he had another quote uh, that, that I kind of build up to in the book and I will reveal now, which is that quantity is the best quality. Um, basically I took that to mean, um, you know, at the end of the day, the amount of time you put in is going to be the most important thing. You know, people love to ask like, how should I divide my study time? You know, should it be 20% openings or 40% openings? Um, but the bottom line is there's just so much to learn if you want to get better at chess. And again, this is why I've come to the reluctant decision that I just don't spend a ton of time working on my own chess because um, because there's just so much to do. You know, it's like pouring. It can feel like pouring water in a bucket with a hole in it, you know. So, you know, you just keep pouring and keep pouring. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that people should give up by any means. Um, but they they just want to proceed with intent in terms of like the role that chess plays in their lives and really take the long view. Really think like, you know, I do cite some exemplars like uh, Neil Bruce, who's been on the podcast and has built a pretty big Twitter follow following. You know, he's just like a little bit, at least a little bit every day um, and, you know, hopefully more, but just brick by brick, slowly work on things. But you know, you, you shouldn't expect miracles. Um, and you shouldn't, you know, you've got to be, if you're putting in the work and you're doing a process that you can be proud of, then whatever happens, happens, you know, like the, the improvement that you seek, I say this in the book too, like it, it may not necessarily come in, in terms of your rating going higher, but you may, but you may learn enough from the process, the whole process 
that you you find the endeavor worthwhile nonetheless. That's that's the hope, at least. We, at the end, we came back to the what Tim Ferriss said. Yeah, Say yeah. It again, losing. Yeah. How was it? Um, that you find if you're starting a new project, start one where even if you lose, you you can still win. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much for coming uh, here. Thank you for all the years of job you have done for the chess world. Uh, thank you for everything. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. And listeners, the book is called Perpetual Chess Improvement. And I don't expect you to go listen to 500 hours of uh, perpetual chess, but this book, you can read it in about six hours and you'll get a lot of the highlights. So, um, what is the easiest way, easiest way for our people to get the book? Is it Amazon? Yeah, it's it's on Amazon. It's it's on Kindle already. It's coming out on I don't know when this will be out, but it's coming for Amazon shipping November fifteenth, and it's on Forward Chess and the New In Chess Reader and New In Chess is shipping, and eventually it won't be hard to find. Right now, it's a little hard to find. Thank you very much, Ben. All right, great to chat. To, thank you. Champions, I'm not going to recommend you buying his book as I have not read it yet myself, which I'm going to do and later share my opinion. However, it is clear that Ben has put his best effort into extracting all the valuable information from the podcast aiming to help chess lovers. I will include the link in the description along with all the other links mentioned in the episode. Feel free to share your comments about our conversation, Ben's thoughts and his book if you have read it already. And I will see you next time, my friends. Stay awesome.